We're moving ahead this morning with our series on Deuteronomy. You remember that Deuteronomy is this uh, speech, this sermon of Moses that occurs as the people of Israel are standing on the edge of the promised land. And as we said from the very first week, quoting Walter Brueggemann, Deuteronomy looks both backward to rootage, it looks back to where you've come from, and forward to crisis. It stands at this turning point in history and interprets, tries to say some things at the precise place where your past and your coming crisis intersect. And we've been... um, not through every one of the first 11 chapters, but last week we talked about chapter 11 of Deuteronomy, which is kind of the closing of the introduction, the the closing of Moses' initial speech. And from that point on, he moves on to the laws that he's going to give um, Israel as they move into the promised land. And I wanted to use as a stepping stone for this morning one of the last quotes from Walter Brueggemann that we used last week should show up on your screen. Here it is. There are inescapable contemporary signs that the neglect of the human infrastructure brings huge costs, listen to this, that the community of the many pays while the gains of the few go unchecked. For those committed to the covenantal option, as readers of Deuteronomy are likely to be, it is reasonable to think that such unfettered, self-securing means, soon or late, forfeiture of viable humanness in brutality, anxiety, loneliness, and despair. As Israel moves into the promised land as this colony, not as a lifeboat, but as a colony, called to live as God wants his people to live in his creation. Unfettered self-securing means sooner or later forfeiture of viable humanness in brutality, anxiety, loneliness, and despair. And so we're going to move into three weeks of looking at a couple of sections of God's law as he lays it out. We can't do everything because we're limited by our time until uh, the second Sunday of April. So I'm just going to pick three, uh, three uh, themes of God's law and then close off uh, four weeks from now. So the laws we're going to get into are very practical. They're very... Um, rooted in the way Israel should live. And particularly for the one this morning, which we'll get to in a second, it's been interesting to me because, uh, as uh, most of you know, in my life I have lived and been fairly deeply rooted in three totally different kinds of cultures. The first ten years of my working life I lived in a communal village or small town uh, of rural Nigeria in which there was no social safety net and very little infrastructure. And it was a very communal society. 
was family-oriented, family-based, and then not just the nuclear family, Ma, Pa, and the kids, but, but the uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters. Everyone was my brother. Everyone was my sister. Everyone was my father. Everyone was my mother. And if we were going to survive, we had to do it together. And then I lived 22 years in the democratic socialism of the Netherlands, a country which is admittedly has some advantages because it's small, only 17 million. It's small geographically. That is, you drive three hours in any direction, you're out of the country. Every single person, name, address, and social security number is in the computer system, so you can find everybody quite easily. But the Netherlands is, is rooted on, and the beating heart of the Netherlands is, give everyone their freedom, but don't let anyone fall through the cracks. We don't want anyone living on the street. We don't want anyone without a meal to eat. We don't want anyone walking around without the basic necessities of life and, and go all the way from health care on down. I was deeply integrated into that society. And of course, my growing up years and the last 10 years, I've been a part of the American society, also fairly deeply integrated society that's primarily um, known for its huge emphasis on capitalism, huge emphasis on individualism, huge emphasis on consumerism, and the idea, finally, that in the end, you really need to pull yourself by, up by your own bootstraps. If you just try hard enough, you really should be able to make it. There is a social safety net, but in comparison to many countries in the world, in fact, most developed countries around the world, the social safety net is relatively weak. So those, those experiences of mine color how I think when I, when I read these texts, particularly the one that's coming up. But I also want to tell you, and you know this, of course, that I am no economist. I am no political or social scientist. I'm no historian. So my remarks probably don't mean all that much. Take them for, for what they're worth. Hopefully they're rooted, rooted in the scriptures. But I just want to lay out for you uh, in the next couple of weeks, some of the things that Leviticus says about how we're to live our lives together, and I really do hope that they challenge you. I don't want you to turn off your Zoom or go home from here and, and not have been given something to think about. So we're going to look today at Deuteronomy chapter 15. And uh, if you have a Bible, you'll notice probably that the heading on top of 15, at least in my Bible, the ESV, is the sabbatical year. And you will probably remember that um, the sabbatical year, or the sabbatical, the seventh, is a very important concept in the Old Testament. After God created the world, on the seventh day he rested. And all through, at different points throughout the giving of the law and throughout the history of Israel, there was this focus that on the seventh day, or on, on every seven years, uh, something would happen that would actually honor the Sabbath. The land gets a rest. Debts were forgiven. 
Debts of all different kinds were forgiven. And that's what we're going to read about in this chapter. So as we read about this, what happens in the seventh year, let's remember that this is rooted in this, this creation principle of God and the Sabbath and giving, giving the land rest. This particular passage doesn't talk about giving the land rest, which you can read about elsewhere. It talks about giving people rest. So follow along with me either on the screen or the wall or in your own Bible. <clears throat> At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. So notice the seven years there. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. In other words, if there was someone... It's called a brother here, but I don't think it only means your actual brother who needed something, a piece of land or some money to start something or some animals or whatever it was, you were to lend that to him or her, but usually I'm sure in this, in this case, patriarchal society was almost always a he. And then that person would pay you back in whatever way, sometimes mostly through labor and you would lend that to him. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. So at the end of seven years, in other words, to say it simply, you were to forgive your brother the debt. Whatever he owed you in labor or money or whatever, you were to just forgive it. But there will be no poor among you, that's a pretty shocking statement. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord will God, your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, and note here that there's no reason given. It doesn't say if he's lazy and he becomes poor, or if he's had bad luck or whatever. If he becomes poor. In any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart. Or shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and the NIV translates the word unworthy as wicked. Take care lest there be a wicked thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. In other words, if my brother says to me in the, in the first year of the seven, would you please loan me a thousand dollars? Then I have the opportunity over that seven years to get some of it back. If in the sixth year he says to me, would you loan me $1,000, I'm not going to get as much of it back. So I'd say, sorry, right now I don't have it. And that's what this is talking about. And it calls that wicked. 
The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Really strong language. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, and I realize that this verse contradicts what we read before. If I had another hour or two, I could try to explain that. I just don't have time to deal with that this morning. But understand that I realize that that contradiction is in the text. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. And I just want to repeat again kind of what are the central verses in here, uh, verses 7 to 8 and 11. I think they should appear on your screen. There we go. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So the command of Moses as this community moves into Israel, into Canaan is wherever you see a poor person who needs help, Don't close your heart off, but open up yourself. Open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. And Brueggemann says this, This happy translation refers to hand and heart, tightened in reflexive fear, resistance, resentment, and indifference. The kinds of responses that the needy tend to evoke in the anxious comfortable. And the anxious comfortable is us. Reflexive fear. Resistance. Resentment. Or indifference. Those of us who are comfortable... Those of us who don't have those needs, those of us who know where our next meal is coming from, those of us whose retirement income is secure. We are the ones that tend to react in fear, resistance, resentment, and indifference to the poor. And I'm thinking, most of us are thinking, I really don't. But I want to challenge you to think about whether it's true if you really don't. And then Brueggemann goes on. The imperative cannot be mistaken. The imperative in this chap in these verses cannot be mistaken. This is this is sorry. This is redistribution of wealth, an act of reparations. A transfer of wealth 
from those who have amassed it to those who have none. The the tradition knows unambiguously that a person without economic resources is not a full functioning member of the community and will not enjoy the dignity and security to which such a companion is entitled. A person without economic resources is not a full functioning member of the community. And remember, in the Bible, and particularly here, it's about the community. It's about us. It's not about me. The teaching is willing to override all conventional common sense economics in which all members have the means to participate effectively. The economy must yield to the viability, the ability to live of the community. The economy must yield to the viability of the community. Crystal clear. Crystal clear. The economy must yield to the viability of the community. And that's the tension, I think, in which most of us, all of us, find ourselves today. What is there about our system that makes it so that it's the individual the one who can pull himself or herself up by his or her bootstraps, who gets ahead. And we're so willing and easy to be indifferent, if not resistant, to the needs of those who do not have the economic resources. And as we struggle in our world today, we struggle uh, with all of the economic and political and social structures that we can think of that might help us care for each other. It's just a tremendous amount of stress and tension. Martin Luther King put it this way in a speech in 1967. Capitalism forgets that life is social. And the kingdom of brotherhood is found neither in the thesis of communism nor the antithesis of capitalism, but in a higher synthesis. And isn't that the struggle of our time? We have on the one hand capitalism, on the other hand communism, just to be real simplistic about it. And right now, neither of them seem to be working very well. And Martin Luther King says, there's a higher synthesis. There's a higher something, and I would say someone, who brings us together. And that someone came to earth about 2,000 years ago. And he went into his hometown, his hometown of Nazareth. And on a Saturday morning, he went into the synagogue. And they handed him the scroll of the text that, he, that was to be read that that morning, and he read it. And he read these words 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, quoting Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim what? The year, this seventh year of the Lord's favor. So lest you think that these concepts in Deuteronomy are Old Testament and don't apply, let me dissuade you of that notion. Jesus says this idea of the seventh year, maybe not in its, in its technical legal form, but the concept of how God's new colony lives with each other and in the world is still here. And then you remember that he says today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. There's nothing of this part of Deuteronomy in its concept, in its theory, in its vision that's been put on the side. And then you move from Jesus into the early church. We went over this last year, I think, it, uh, uh, a number of times, but I'll just read from Acts 4. This text will appear. Now the full number of those who believed in the first church were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. See this idea of great power and great grace rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and what does it produce? Does it produce a spirituality divided from the realities of life that says, I now have a ticket to heaven? That's not what this says. The power of the apostles and the grace that was upon them, rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, resulted in the fact that there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is a different structure than Deuteronomy. It's not talking here about the forgiveness of debts. But the theme, the purpose the goal that there not be a poor person among us, the theme, the purpose of the goal, that anyone without economic resources is not contributing to the viability of the community is deeply embedded in this early church. So what I want to encourage us and what I think Deuteronomy encourages us to do is to, is to think about how this theme, this vision is working in our lives. How are we making choices How are we structuring our lives in such a way that everyone, poor
poor or rich, can become a part of this community so that it's the community that's viable and not just me as an individual. And Christopher, I'm going to skip over a whole section so, so you don't have to show any more slides from this point until we get to the video. Thanks. How can we, how can we renew our vision and, and change some of the ways that our particular society and economics has, has burned into our hearts and minds about what's important and how we should live? Just say a couple of things. One is, this communal perspective, this web of belonging perspective is the heart of the gospel. If your gospel is a gospel that is primarily centered around what happens to me when I die, as important as that is, and the Bible talks about it, but if that's the heart of it, when someone asks you what is the gospel, and that's your answer, I respectfully submit that you've missed the heart of it. The heart of it is that we're in this together. All of us as people, together with God's creation. And God is working, not just to save you, and not just to save me, or not just to save a few, but to renew and revitalize all of creation. And then I encourage you to think through your own life. Where do I find in my life practical concern for the poor and the marginalized? And is that costing me anything? Or am I, li am I like the man in the sixth year who says, you know what, <laughs> it's the sixth year, sorry, it doesn't pay off for me to loan to you or to help you out. And as you consider and evaluate our political, social, and economic climate, as you decide for whom you will vote, are these principles in your mind? Who will do the most to promote community and humanity? Which leaders and parties do that? And, and no one is perfect and no one's going to do it completely. But are these the things that are guiding how you think and how you read and how you educate yourself about the world around us? And I would also like to suggest that, well, I'm not going to suggest this, you know this, over the last 40 to 50 years, our political climate in the United States has become hugely polarized. And people on different sides of the aisle are seeing the, the, each other as enemies. And I would like to suggest to you that there certainly are crazy outliers on all sides. I mean, they're, they're, they're I just call them nuts. <laughs> But in the middle, in the majority, is this group of people 
that however imperfectly still is desiring to work for the best for our culture and our world. In my volunteer work over the last four or five years, I've run across people in almost all levels of society. Education, judicial, social work, psychological work, medical work, And I've almost exclusively run into people who really do want to do what is best. So what if we stop seeing the other as an enemy, someone who's trying to destroy something, but as someone who, even though I may disagree with the method that they use, or the system that they think will work the best? What if I saw them as a companion? Let me give you one little practical example. I'm sure you're all familiar with the term woke. Woke is used now all over the place in our society, but particularly by evangelical Christians. And it's usually used as a way to denigrate, right? They're just woke. And it's used to put someone down. It's used to broad brush. It's used to smear. I'm not sure if you know what the definition of woke is. The main definition that I found is this. Woke means that one is aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially issues of racial injustice and inequality. That's it. Aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially issues of racial injustice and equality. So call me woke. Go ahead. I don't care. Call me woke. And I'd much rather be woke than asleep as it comes to these issues. And stop using a term like this to denigrate someone else. Understand that someone else or a group of people, and again, nobody's perfect and nobody's doing it perfectly. We're looking for how can we function together as a society of people so that no one falls out of the boat. And you may feel yourself stuck in a system over which you have no control. Debt may be a problem for you. Economic and lifestyle issues that are a result of choices that you made maybe years or decades ago. Economic and lifestyle issues that are a result of choices that, have, that others have made for you. You might think to yourself, how do I, how do I get out? What, what do I do? How do I get out of this? And that's a hard question, and, and I don't have any easy answers for you. But part of our Christian calling as followers of Jesus Christ is to wrestle with these issues and to try to pull ourselves free, and I'll use the, the term, from the empire. And as individuals and as a community, Pay attention to the needs 
of the people around us, especially those who are marginalized, as well as the creation in which we find ourselves. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And in this particular period of time, as we come out of COVID, as, as, as the war in Ukraine has broken out, and as there's so much distress all around us, we experience this groaning in ways that perhaps we never have before. And I want to ask you to open yourselves up to that groaning, to feel it, to not be indifferent. But in that groaning, to realize as Paul closes that chapter, chapter 8, For I am sure, he says, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So be comforted by that, receive hope from that, but also receive the energy and the power and the vision that you need. This Jesus who came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this year of Jubilee, he'll give you what you need to move in a direction that's different than the direction that the society around you is pushing you in almost every minute of every day of your life.